I'm Jonathan Bastian. This week on KCRW's Life Examined, we team up with KCRW's Bodies Podcast. Producer Hannah Harris-Green travels to West Virginia, where activists are handing out clean needles and opioid overdose medications like Narcan, even as the government pushes back. You don't know if your friends are going to live or die because you don't know if they're going to have access to supplies like Narcan that could save their lives. And later, Professor Carl Hart of Columbia University argues in his new book called Drug Use for Grownups that our entire notion of addiction has been dramatized by Hollywood and the media. No matter what the drug is, from crack cocaine, heroin, MDMA, psilocybin, doesn't matter what the drug is, the vast majority of the users of that drug do not meet criteria for drug addiction. Why small-town community activists and university researchers are urging us to rethink our views on drugs. All ahead on Life Examined. There seem to be two portraits of drugs in America right now. If you're in states like California or Oregon, you've probably heard about pushes to decriminalize or legalize substances like cannabis or psilocybin. But it's in states like West Virginia that the other portrait emerges. There, the state legislature has imposed strict new rules that regulate and reduce the availability of hygiene supplies like syringes and Narcan. All the while, West Virginia has among the highest overdose rates in the country. In the latest episode of Season 3 of KCRW's Bodies podcast, a producer on the show travels to West Virginia and describes her time with Lil, who runs an unofficial harm reduction program by handing out some of these much-needed supplies. The story raises some big questions. Like, instead of trying to ban drugs, are there ways to support drug use that will save lives and promote healthier communities? Joining me now is Allison Berenger, the creator and host of KCRW's podcast series. For those new to Bodies, it's a show about medical mysteries, where in previous seasons, people uncover the forces that shape their health. Joining me now is Allison Berenger. She's the creator and host of KCRW's Bodies. And for those new to Bodies, it's a show about medical mysteries, where in previous seasons, people uncover the forces that shape their health. Well, Allison, it's good to see you. Welcome to Life Examined. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jonathan. Well, congratulations on season three. Um, already out. Loved hearing so much of it already. And and I was just curious, as you began to pull this season together, what were some of the themes you were thinking at to begin to link all of these episodes together? Yeah, so, you know, uh, when we first started thinking about the third season, it was early this year, 2021. You know, we've all come off a really hard last year. Um, And something that we really wanted to bring to this season was levity and joy. Mm. Um, And I think that there's there's always been those small moments, um, but we really wanted to focus on that. Um, Our first episode, uh, if you listen, it's called Something Extra. And it's about a woman named Kelly dealing with um, an STD. But but interestingly enough, it's a really light and fun story. Yeah, certainly something we could all use after the last couple of years. And I know that this question of community was really on your mind as well. Say a little bit about that. Yeah. And the other thing that we were thinking a lot about going into this season was the idea of community. And in all bodies episodes, community is 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 kind of a theme in the background. It's often how people figure out what their medical mystery is or how they kind of navigate a new diagnosis. And this season, we kind of wanted to bring the community to the forefront. And so there's a couple episodes this season where you don't just meet one person going through a thing. You meet a whole group of people who are connected either through the work that they're trying to do or through some kind of shared condition that they have. So bring us a little bit into the episode um, that, that we're going to explore today. You know, uh, exploring the, the worlds of, of drugs, psychedelics. This has been really big on Life Examined over the last year. But I think we're going to dig into something a little bit deeper here, which is real life stories, um, questions of how policy plays in to the real world. So tell us how you heard about this this kind of amazing story in West Virginia. Yeah, so we were at our kickoff meeting for the season with the whole team, producers, editors. And um, and we were talking about this idea of community and, and all these themes that I've just shared. Um, and we were kind of going around the the Zoom room. 
and asking people for ideas of the story. And one of the producers on the team, Hannah Harris Green, pitched the idea of an episode about harm reduction. And to be totally honest, I was like, I don't really know what that is. Like, how is that going to be a body story? Um, and then Hannah went out and did some great reporting and kind of came back to us with a really uh, fleshed out story idea and, and an amazing person and a group of people in West Virginia. All right. Well, well let's head there now. Um, Allison, um, again, congrats on the season and we'll chat with you soon. Yeah, thanks so much. All right. Well, I want to bring in the producer here. This is Hannah Harris-Green, um, who, who went out and reported the entire story. Hannah, welcome to the program. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, tell us about your interest in, in this idea of harm reduction and wh- where you got this idea from. Yeah, so I think my interest in harm reduction comes partly from one of the communities that I'm a part of, which is the queer community. So I've done some reporting in the past on AIDS activism and how queer AIDS activists sort of invented the idea of safer sex, uh, which is a concept that I learned about growing up, but I didn't know that it was queer people who came up with this concept um, in, uh, in response to the AIDS crisis. So before the government was really doing anything to respond to the AIDS crisis, queer people were figuring out how to live life um, and still have moments of joy while dealing with AIDS. And that's kind of how I first learned about the concept of harm reduction. I also was interested in new laws surrounding drug use in this country this year. So I actually first learned that Oregon decriminalized the possession of small amounts of drugs like heroin. It's the first state in the country to do, to do that. And West Virginia has kind of gone in the opposite direction. So not only criminalizing drugs, but criminalizing uh, supplies to help people use drugs more safely. And, and that seemed important. And I found this group of queer activists fighting these laws in West Virginia and fighting for people who use drugs to be safe. Yeah, and it's interesting that you hit on the two different tracks the country's going, right? Suddenly we're talking about uh, psychedelic therapy becoming mainstream, but other states like West Virginia moving, just as you said, in the opposite direction. And so it it brings us to this question of harm reduction. Um, Similar to Allison, I got to say it's a a, a term or a phrase I, I haven't been as familiar with. So tell us a little bit about that. So I actually don't remember the first time that I heard the phrase harm reduction, but the way I understand it now after having done some reporting about it, it's sort of a philosophy and a way to live life while taking risks for whatever reason, but keeping yourself and others as safe as reasonably possible while taking those risks. And I think that there are a lot of reasons we want to do risky things. Um, Sex is risky, but I think for a lot of people, life would not feel as worthwhile if we couldn't have sex. So uh, practicing harm reduction can include things like using a condom and other ways of practicing safer sex. Uh, During the pandemic, you know, we all got to a point where we had to leave the house, right? Like whether to do survival things like grocery shopping or to see friends and family and feel okay. Uh, So one way to practice harm reduction is by wearing a mask uh, so you're less likely to transmit COVID or other illnesses to other people. Uh, there, there's lots of things that you can consider harm reduction. Yeah, no, that, that, that's well said. Well, I, I want to now take this journey down to West Virginia, and it, it centers on this, on this wonderful character, Lil. Tell us a little bit about Lil. Yeah, so Lil is definitely like nobody I've ever met before. They run this sort of grassroots harm reduction collective from this house of theirs in a small mountain town in West Virginia. A lot of people have left since the coal industry has been in decline. So there's a lot of, you know, empty storefronts and broken glass and things like that. And they are from Appalachia. They're from Appalachian, Kentucky. And they grew up pretty poor and surrounded by a lot of poverty and surrounded by a lot of people who use drugs. And and this was in the 90s also when I grew up, where there was a lot of war on drugs propaganda that kind of told us people who use drugs and especially people who sell drugs are pretty disgusting uh, and shameful. And Lil's dad sold drugs. And for a long time, they really internalized that shame and didn't want to be who they were, where they were from. But when their dad got arrested and they started to understand the system better, they realized that a lot of the stigma around people who use drugs and a lot of the poverty and problems that they have is systemic, Uh, you know, coming from the carceral system, 
coming from exploitation in the coal industry and things like this. So they realize that people who use drugs deserve to live and deserve to be happy as much as anybody else. And they started to try to fill in that gap uh, by helping people who use drugs stay safe and feel cared for. Right. And there's this very moving clip of Lil I want to play. In this case, Lil is talking about the experience of reviving someone after they've had an overdose and and what that's like. So um, let's take a listen to that. They have no idea what happened. You know, they definitely don't know that they overdosed until you tell them. People that are really struggling, you'll hear them say like, oh, you should have just let me die. You know, people have said that to me. Um, And I'm always like, how could you say that? You know, like your life is so precious. (laughs) You know, your life was just in my hands. It's so precious. So, Hannah, how comfortable were you traveling down there, being with Lil in the house, uh, watching everything happen? Give us a sense of that. Yeah, so I think that leading up to this reporting trip, I was nervous. I was nervous because what Lil does is becoming more and more risky due to to these new laws in West Virginia. Uh, And then Lil just cares for people generally it doesn't matter who you are where you're from when i was in a lift to meet them i like experienced some mild anti-semitism which left me a little bit ruffled but by the time i saw lil i was completely fine i you know i was safe even still lil was really outraged on my behalf and you know making sure that i wouldn't have to get in a car with this driver again and they're uh Lyra, who lives near Lil, also was very outraged for me and, you know, was like, I'll drive you anywhere. Just don't get in that car. And I was really touched by that because, you know, Lil and Lyra are dealing with life and death every day. So the fact that they would be concerned for me anyway uh, made me feel very comfortable and safe. Yeah. In the beginning of your reporting, uh, when you're at Lil's house, you came across um, someone called Bruce. Um, Why was he important in telling this story? Yeah, so Bruce kind of just showed up out of the blue for dinner one night at Lil's house, and I was really blown away meeting him because he started talking about something really traumatic and really recently that had happened to him within five minutes of me meeting him. Well, she saved my life the other day. Uh-huh. I OD'd on heroin, mm-hmm. and she come down and uh, distributed Narcan and gave me mouth to mouth, which I, I still love her. <laughs> uh, yeah, she uh, come down, and I guess I give them all a good scare. And she puts forth a lot of effort and a lot of her time to get shot down by a bunch of bureaucrats over in Charleston that don't give a shit about nothing other than herself and padding her own pockets, you know. How would you say this gives us a sense of the kind of work that Lil does? I think meeting Bruce made me realize how real the pressure that Lil is under um, is. So, you know, 24 hours a day, they are ready to, you know, get out of bed, whatever, go to someone's house and administer Narcan, or uh, which is an overdose reversal drug that can save people's lives. So they do a lot of more mundane day-to-day stuff, including putting together and distributing supplies, including making herbal medicine for people. But I think always on the back of their mind, they know that they could be the thing that saves somebody's life. Yeah. This type of work is getting hard for Lil because of what's happening in the West Virginia legislature, something you referred to earlier in the piece. What's happening illegally right now? Yeah, so the easiest way for me to understand what's happening in West Virginia right now uh, is kind of by comparing it to what's happening with abortion in a lot of parts of the country. So West Virginia is specifically regulating the uh, distribution of supplies for safer drug use, including clean syringes. And they're not making it illegal outright to give out clean syringes, but they're regulating it to the point where it becomes almost impossible to do legally, which will affect access and mean that more people are without the supplies they need and more people are at risk of illness and death. Mm. And it makes me wonder, I mean, what's been happening in West Virginia that we consistently read about overdose stories in the news? What did you learn down there? Yeah, I learned that that is very real and it affects people's lives every day. And it, uh, you know, in communities of people who use drugs, 
you don't know if your friends are going to live or die within the next few weeks or the next year because you don't know if they're going to have access to uh, supplies like Narcan that could save their lives. And and almost everyone I met, uh, possibly everyone I met, had lost somebody to drug overdose. Uh, and so th- there's a lot of, even if people aren't talking about it or showing it all the time, you can kind of feel the sorrow and the heartbreak that comes with that when you're there. Yeah, and I know there's a lot of thoughts and ideas as to how this happened from the people that live there. You heard from someone called Junior. Yeah, so Junior used to work in the coal mining industry, and he told me that he quit because he is clumsy and because the it's so uh, unregulated safety-wise, he, he thought that the job would kill him. So he ended up uh, becoming an activist fighting coal mines in his community, and he has his own views about why so many people have substance dependency in West Virginia. A lot of the ways that this stuff started in these areas was, you know, somebody's working for the coal company and they get hurt on the job. They pretty much ride them whatever they needed to ride them to get them right back to work the next day or the day after. You know what I mean? Whether that was pain pills or, or what. You know, these, these folks that the companies helped to get hooked on these painkillers and stuff, you know, got too sick to work, lost their jobs, lost their health insurance. And that's when you've seen these other drugs come into the communities that, you know, aren't necessarily produced by a pharmaceutical company. Hannah, give us a sense of, of how bad it's gotten down there. Is there any data that, that paints a picture? Yeah, there is. So actually, after this law went into effect that, uh, you know, regulates and criminalizes the distribution of clean syringes, the CDC released a report about uh, an increase in the number of IV drug-related HIV cases uh, and recommended that access to clean syringes increase. So the report found that the number of IV drug-related HIV cases in part of West Virginia has gone way up in the last couple of years, I think by around nine times as much. Uh, And when it comes to overdoses, West Virginia has more overdose deaths per capita than anywhere else in the country. So uh, the latest CDC statistics I found are from 2019. There were 59 overdose deaths per 100,000 people in 2019, that's compared to four overdose deaths per 100,000 people in West Virginia 20 years before in 1999. So uh, this must impact how Lilla's operating. Um, You drove around with them to different neighborhoods and houses where people were using drugs. What did you find? Yeah, so I think Lil is very strategic in how they operate. They have a network of people who use drugs who help them distribute safe supplies. And uh, so in some cases, they will go to a house themselves uh, and distribute supplies to people who use drugs. Or there was one instance where we met with somebody in a parking lot who had her own contacts uh, of communities of people who use drugs. And um, Lil just gave them a big box of supplies and then she went off and distributed them herself. And, you know, one thing she was concerned about was did Lil need to know who she was giving the supplies to? And Lil said, no, I don't need to know that because that, you know, that's going to scare people. Uh, If they have to reveal their identity, they're going to be worried that they have to be, you know, they could be caught by law enforcement. So, you know, Lil is careful to keep people anonymous if they want to be anonymous. Uh, The way they behave also changes a lot depending on the police presence in a given area or the laws, because local laws around West Virginia still vary when it comes to distribution of supplies. Right. And and, and Hannah, I mean, one of the things that that jumped out to me in the story is when you talked about there there were people who, who may overdose two times in a week. Did you get the sense that Lil was really helping them, say, by giving Narcan versus trying to send them to rehab or something like that? Yeah, so they did tell me that they know people who have overdosed that often this year, which uh, is shocking. Uh, And I think, yes, Lil is helping them because they're keeping those people alive. And I think survival, you know, like that's at the base of the pyramid, right? Like you want to survive in order to maybe make your life better in the future. But yeah, the question of rehab, I think that's tough because rehab doesn't always work that well for people who have resources. Uh, You know, you hear about people in and out of rehab. You hear about people who go to rehab and are still unable to quit drugs and other substances. 
And I think when it comes to, you know, Lil's community is mostly very poor. Uh, so I wouldn't imagine that any rehab they'd have access to would be very well resourced. And then I don't imagine that they would have the mental health care they need after getting out of rehab to stay off of whatever substance. So I think that's part of it. And then there's the fact that, you know, it's really hard to make someone quit drugs who isn't ready. I think that's something that many you know probably most people have seen in their friends and family like we know people who struggle with addiction and we know that telling them to quit isn't going to make them quit I, mm. I i think that's a pretty common experience so just because somebody's not ready to quit doesn't mean that they don't deserve to live um and you know giving someone narcan is giving them another chance at life and I think that that's very much what Lil uh, reiterated in the piece. We have a little bit of tape from that. Let, let's take a listen. Well, I would definitely talk to that person about strategies to overdose less, you know. Um, and one of those strategies might be getting administered naloxone a lot, you know. Um, and... Uh, that is traumatic and it is chaotic and it does take a toll. You're not wrong about that. Um, but I think if you push someone away by projecting your desire for them to quit and that's not where they are, that might be the time that they OD without the naloxone, you know? Once again, that's the voice of Lil, who you can hear in season three of Bodies. Well, Hannah Harris-Green, thank you for bringing us down to West Virginia, sharing this story with us, and leaving us with some big questions and issues. We really appreciate your reporting and your time. Yeah, thank you. KCRW's Bodies is available wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Life Examined. We'll be back in a moment. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. From a small town in West Virginia to an Ivy League university in New York, we continue this week exploring drug use in America. And if there's been any one book that's raised eyebrows and turned heads recently, it's Drug Use for Grown-Ups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear by Professor Carl Hart. Dr. Hart is a neuroscientist and a psychologist at Columbia University, where he's researched drug abuse and drug addiction for 30 years. In his new book, Hart is highly critical of U.S. drug policy and misinformation. He says we need to be realistic. People are going to use drugs. And as a result, we need to make the process safer and more controlled. Beyond that, Hart has been open about his own drug use, arguing that people can lead productive lives and ingest banned substances, even if that includes heroin or methamphetamines. Carl Hart, thanks for joining us on Life Examined. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jonathan, and I'm really happy to be here. We just heard this very moving piece about harm reduction in West Virginia, and, and I want us to just sit with that term um, and, and this idea out there of harm reduction. You're somebody who's been studying drug use and its impact on communities for, for you know 30 plus years. Do you think harm reduction works? What's your take on it? Well, in terms of the term, uh, it might be helpful for people just to think about it as uh, common sense or education. Uh, when we when we use the term harm reduction, we usually use it exclusively talking about drugs, uh, but really harm reduction is just prevention, common sense. Uh, when we go out in our car, we put on our seatbelt. Uh, when we uh, at night in the mornings we brush our teeth to pre uh, to try to prevent uh, any sort of dental problems. Uh, the same is true with harm reduction in terms of drugs. Uh, we want to make sure we keep people safe. Uh, we want to give them the skills and the tools to make sure that they are um, um, not putting themselves in unnecessary harm's way. So from a public policy perspective, do you, do you support those types of initiatives? Uh, from a common sense perspective, 
perspective of support <laughs> these initiatives. I mean, this is uh, low level stuff. Uh, we have to think about why anybody would be against such initiatives, first of all. Uh, people are against these initiatives in part because they say that they encourage drug use or they condone drug use. Uh, it's like saying uh, if you hand out condoms, you're encouraging or in or in condoning uh, sexual behavior. The fact is, sexual behavior is going to happen. The question becomes, what do we do as a society to make sure that uh, people uh, engage in the behavior as safely as possible and make sure that people are protected? So I, I am hearing that any previous attempts to try and tell people to stop using drugs generally is not a tactic that works. Think about it. Someone, uh, we have said, uh, stop having premarital sex. Mm -hmm. uh, it ain't going to happen. Um, and so it's like, okay, we have to be smart about these things. People use drugs for a variety of reasons. Um, and those reasons aren't going anywhere. Drug use isn't going anywhere. That's the bottom line. And so uh, me as a thinking person who is concerned about the health of my community has to figure out a way to make sure that people engage in the behavior as safe as possible. Well, just to stay with West Virginia for a little bit, this is a place I'm sure you've you've looked at. What do you think is going on in, in that state such that we, we're constantly hearing about overdoses, high levels of drug use? What are your thoughts on it? Uh, well, no disrespect to the people of West Virginia, but let's think about their economy. Uh, factories have left. Uh, people are desperate. Um, uh, they have a lot of problems related to things like contaminated water. Um, they are being uh, screwed over uh, in some cases by local government. Um, it's a depressing place. Um, and so it's not surprising that people may, in some cases, uh, uh, seek uh, escape or, or, or seek to feel better about themselves or their place. Uh, in this world, and, and sometimes drugs uh, are used in that capacity. And so it's not surprising when you have so much deprivation uh, that people are, are engaging in the behavior and not only engaging in the behavior, but doing so in desperate sort of ways. Um, and the, what I mean there is that West Virginia has some restrictive restrictive policies. Uh, and so people um, may do some desperate things in order to get drugs or equipment. And when people do desperate things, particularly in the shadows of society, it increases the likelihood that they put themselves in harm's way. They get contaminated drugs. They inject in dark, uh, unsanitary places. All of those things increase the likelihood of people um, going to maybe experience uh, drug-related overdoses. And I think this kind of brings us into some of the big questions of your book, and, and that, let's, let's get there now. I mean, I know that you talk about addiction as not just the power of a drug, but the power of so many components of somebody's life, which will lead them towards addiction. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, so when we think about uh, drug use in general, no matter what the drug is from cocaine, crack cocaine, heroin, MDMA, psilocybin, doesn't matter what the drug is, the vast majority of the users of that drug do not meet criteria for drug addiction. Um, given that that's the case, it tells us that we have to look beyond the drug itself when we're trying to figure out what is underlying the addictive behaviors. Mm. And I think this is, of course, where we're your book has, has created so much attention is bucking the kind of the norm thought pattern of thinking, wait, something like meth or, or uh, you know, heroin, they're not immediately addictive. People can use them recreationally without uh, immediately being stuck uh, every day in an addictive pattern. Yeah. So if we think about the two drugs that you mentioned only, methamphetamine and heroin, 
Uh, methamphetamine is uh, FDA approved for treating attention deficit disorder as well as treating obesity. Uh, it's a medication um, that has been prescribed in the United States and it's still available. And the people who are prescribed the medication, for example, uh, again, the majority of people who even use it illicitly don't meet criteria criteria for addiction. Heroin is an approved medication uh, in Europe and in, in, in several countries. Um, uh, many people use heroin to control uh, pain um, and they don't ex have this problem related to addiction. Addiction has a lot to do with um, whether the drug is available legally and the uh, links that people have to go to the, go through in order to get the drug. Uh, uh, other issues like like uh, whether or not the person has uh, chronic unrealistic expectations being heaped upon them, um, a wide range of factors, whether or not the person has a, a co-occurring psychiatric illness. Uh, but if the person does not have all of those sort of issues going on, the likelihood of them becoming addicted to even heroin or methamphetamine is relatively low. Mm. So where do we get this idea? This and, and I know you've used the word the dramatization before. I mean, how do we get to a point where we think, you know, you just sample one of these drugs, you're hooked for life? Well, unfortunately, um, when it comes to the media, and when I say media, our television programs, our films, um, think about any movie you've ever seen about the heroin. Uh, invariably, it ends or it begins with someone hooked on heroin and having a problem related to heroin. The characters do not have to be developed um, uh, because we have agreed as a society that heroin is bad and you no longer have to think when you talk about heroin or methamphetamine. Uh, all of those sort of uh, images in our society perpetuates this mythology. Uh, our news programs, um, just uh, our education even perpetuates this sort of nonsense. And so as long as you have all of these interested groups, law enforcement uh, perpetuates this, all of these interested groups, they perpetuate these mythologies. As long as they're all working together uh, in this sort of uh, uh, way, uh, it's going to be really hard and difficult to challenge this perspective, as I am finding out with um, my book tour. Mm -hmm. You found people that are perhaps in a lot of disbelief, I take it? Uh, disbelief is putting it lightly. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but, you, you know, when you think about um, uh, opioid use, heroin use, and this is not to minimize the fact that there are people who actually are struggling and there are people who uh, overdose on these substances, because that's a fact. Uh, but there's, it, it's also a fact that the vast majority of people who use these drugs don't have that problem, but they have, like, their lives... Otherwise, their, their lives uh, are okay. Um, they have jobs. They have a, a more complete sort of life. And so we should think about encouraging people to have more complete lives. Make sure that they have other activities. Make sure that they have economic security. Make sure that they have uh, housing security. All of these things go a long way in decreasing the likelihood of people experiencing problems, not only from drugs, but from a wide range of other issues in our society. Mm. And you would even stand by this when we think about, uh, just as you mentioned, the opioid epidemic. Again, one that I think has been described as we, um, we have no control over the drug. The drug takes control of someone's life. They can't get, you know, they can't get out of the addictive patterns and, you know, they end up overdosing. Yeah, that's, that's just nonsense. And, and most people who use drugs know that that's nonsense because they've been using drugs for, I mean, successful people in our society. Uh, this is one of the sort of clarion calls of the book. I'm, I'm asking people who are middle class or upper class who are privileged people to get out of the closet about their own drug use because mm. people have been so dishonest and this dishonesty is killing people. Uh, if people were out of the closet sharing with others um, strategies that work and strategies that they use in order to uh, 
make sure that um, uh, drug-related behaviors don't take over their life. It's 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 not that complicated, but mm. we have been dishonest about it. And I will mention that this is something you've self-disclosed that you you've used small amounts of heroin or small other other drugs. And I just wonder how the disclosure has gone. How, how has it been for you to put that out in the public for people? Yeah, in terms of how the public has responded, it's been. Uh, um, almost bifurcated. There mm. has been a group who has really been so encouraged and so appreciative uh, because they've been in the shadows, they've been in the closet, they've been dishonest, and they have had a difficult time uh, with that sort of dishonesty. And then there's another group who uh, act as if I have uh, insulted their mother mm. uh, by, by saying this sort of thing, by being honest about what I do. And my honesty about what I do or have done is really my own business. And it's like the thing that we should focus on is how well do I treat other people? How well do we as a society treat other people? That's the only thing that really matters. Mm -hmm. And how important is language with all of this? This idea of calling someone a, a drug user versus somebody who uses drugs or, you know, there, there's different terminology that's very loaded in our culture. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, terminology is really important because it shapes the way we think, the way we behave. Um, it, so it's critical, but it's also important for us not to get uh, hung up or caught up only on terminology. We have to also act. That is, we have to treat people better. And so if I call someone a certain name, but I treat them really well, that's far more important in, in my mind, but still not to minimize the importance of terminology because terminology is important. We started this interview off by talking about harm reduction. Um, harm reduction, that term is used exclusively to talk about drug related sort of issues. Um, and so the constant pairing of drugs and harms, drugs and harms, has shaped the way we think of drugs, even with harm reduction, which is a good thing. The practice is a good thing, but the sort of constant pairing of harm reduction with drugs is not so good. And so I, in my book, I try to encourage people to maybe even come up with a different term um, to uh, in, in an effort to avoid this constant negative pairing. Drugs harm, drugs harm. Um, it shapes how we think and behave. Mm. I wonder if you could give us a, a short history lesson as to how the war on drugs, or as we would call, quote unquote, the crack epidemic, has impacted the black community in terms of how we think about the black community, in terms of uh, drug policy. I mean, wh where do you see, how can you at least give us a taste of this conversation? Yeah, so when we think about the war on drugs, uh, the term history is a good one because oftentimes people like to say that this is the 50th year of the war on drugs. In 1971, Richard Nixon uh, officially announced the war on drugs. That just simply isn't true. The war on drugs really started um, in sort of full earnest in about 1909 when we tried to pass the first federal laws. Um, the Harrison Act, which restricted uh, cocaine and opioids in this country. It didn't pass in 1909, but the real war began to intensify then. It passed in 1914. Um, and at that, and about that time, in order to get the American public to support uh, this sort of restricting of these uh, drugs, they weren't bad. Uh, the restrictions just meant that people who were dealing in these drugs had to register and pay a tax. They were still available available to middle class white people, but they weren't available uh, to like lower class folks at that time. But um, during that time, in order to get the white population to support these laws, incredible uh, exaggerations of drug effects uh, in black people were made up in order to uh, get the support. For example, one example was that uh, Southern police forces were saying that black people who took cocaine um, became um, impervious to uh, 38 uh, to 32 caliber bullets, and so, so 
Southern police forces had to move to the 38 caliber weapon. Um, and they did because of these lies. And they also said that uh, cocaine made black men uh, more murderous and better marksmen. Um, they, it's, they said that uh, uh, black men use cocaine in order to get white women to be in prostitution. Uh, so there were all kinds of stories, um, exaggerations that were made up that were racist um, in order to get the population to go along with the passage of these laws. Um, and, and that still continues today. Uh, many of our uh, negative stereotypes about drugs are associated with um, groups that we don't particularly like in a society. Uh, and then there are drugs that we consider good drugs, like like today, the psychedelics, uh, we, when we think of the psychedelics, we think of middle-class, uh, well-educated white folks, typically. And, um, and a drug like uh, ketamine, for example, would be classified as a psychedelic. Um, uh, PCP is ketamine's chemical cousin. They are uh, nearly identical, these drugs are, but they have wildly different stories attached to them. PCP, we think of the blacks sort of uh, male out of control person who the police had to shoot 38 times in order to subdue. Um, but ketamine we think of as a drug that you use to reach a higher, higher spiritual plane, mm -hmm. uh, when in fact they produce almost identical effects. But these are the stories that we tell in our society in order to uh, make sure people understand uh, which drugs are good and which drugs are bad. And these stories have almost no foundations in uh, evidence. As a black man yourself, how do you sit with some of these, these issues that are, that are pretty profound? Well, as a black man as, and as a man who cares about humanity and my fellow citizens, um, it disturbs the hell out of me. That's mm. why I wrote the book. That's why I encouraged my middle-class white brothers and sisters to get out of the closet about their drug use so we can change the image of what a drug user is and take some pressure off of those people who are less fortunate in our society. What does cannabis legalization teach us, if anything? And perhaps I, I'm wondering, too, if I'm saying this as just as you say, cannabis, perhaps more associated with white people. I don't know. Does that have something to do with this, too? But I, I, we are seeing this as as a big movement across the U.S. I wonder if this is something that you're watching uh, that is perhaps a bellwether for things to come. Yeah, I, I'm encouraged by uh, can, cannabis legalization across the states. It's an interesting thing because the states are uh, engaging in these experiments where one state's legalized and then they have a certain uh, legislation or law and another state subsequently legalizes and they learn and they modify their law to improve upon it. Uh, so I think that's a great thing. But the thing, one of the important messages that we should take away from this is that First of all, we have no new knowledge about cannabis, really. We've known the effects of cannabis in humans uh, for decades. And so uh, the discerning person should, should say, well, what changed? Uh, why is cannabis now legal? money. That's why cannabis is illegal. We figured out that we can make a tremendous amount of money off of cannabis legalization. And so that that's why cannabis is uh, legalization is moving forward and not because of some new knowledge. Um, and this is the same thing that happened with alcohol prohibition. We overturned alcohol prohibition. By the way, the 18th Amendment that banned um, alcohol in the United States, uh, it's the only amendment to be overturned. Uh, that was overturned by the 21st Amendment, and we overturned it because of the promise of uh, we wouldn't have to pay income tax. Uh, we were told uh, that uh, the tax generated from alcohol would uh, take care of our income taxes, and so none of us would have to pay income taxes. And so we um, passed the 21st Amendment. Um, just like now with cannabis, we're all being told about all of the tax revenue that we can generate. So it's really about money. And so if you could design a system uh, in which drugs are legalized, would you have everything go the road of cannabis, including, um, including heroin, including methamphetamines? What, what do you think? 
Uh, no, I would have the federal government participate. At the moment, the federal government has been AWOL in this whole cannabis thing. Um, I think the federal government needs to be involved to make sure that we have just a general standard, quality control at, at a federal level, just like we have with our foods, just like we have with alcohol, uh, to make sure that uh, everything's standardized. Um, and in terms of uh, how we do legalization of other drugs, um, there are a lot of smart people out here who uh, really think about that particular nut, the nuts and bolts, uh, a lot more, a lot more than I do. But really, it's not that complicated. We put people on the moon. This is um, um, this is a lot less complicated than that. I know for you, there is this real importance that. Okay, we acknowledge people are going to use drugs, at least have them be safe. Even if we don't agree with what the drug is, have them be safe. For example, I know you've referenced the story of Prince, how he died, right? Yes. Prince um, died from um, a fentanyl uh, overdose. Uh, that's what it appeared. It's certainly that's what his blood levels look like. Um, uh, he thought he was getting uh, Percocet, or that's what the evidence kind of looked like at this moment. Um, a number of people get tainted drug. Uh, they think that they have heroin, and then they're in, in fact they have uh, fentanyl. Fentanyl is more potent uh, than heroin or oxycodone or those other drugs. And so, if someone takes a drug thinking that it's heroin um, at the usual amount, um, that might be enough to kill a person. Uh, and so that really concerns me, and that, that's why I want the federal government to step in to have some quality control, uh, make sure people know what they're getting at what dose, and then we teach people about dose, we teach people about the routes of administration, we teach people about the environment in which drugs are taking, how important that is. Uh, we teach people about being healthy, eating well, sleeping well. All of these sort of things uh, impacts drug effects. Um, and when we do such a thing, then we are um, trying to live up to the original promise of the country. That is the Declaration of Independence that guaranteed people at least three birthrights that can't be taken away. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, so long as you don't bother other people. Mm -hmm. and, and I know for you, this is where the pursuit of happiness, perhaps, this is where you think that kind of uh, drug use for adults used in a responsible way is something that makes sense. It not only does drug use for adults uh, use it in a responsible way, it does that, not only does that make sense, uh, it's what we all do when we're doing something like alcohol. We do caffeine, we do all of these sort of drugs, um, and then other people do use other drugs in, in this way, cannabis, uh, MDMA, a wide range of drugs. We're doing it. The only problem is, is that uh, we are lying about what we're doing, and um, that hypocrisy uh, it's really not healthy for our society. Yeah. Are there any drugs, though, that even you, as somebody who knows the chemistry of these, are a little concerned about? I mean, fentanyl, for example. I'm in the media. I, I hear the crazy stories. I may be the one that's undereducated here, but a drug even like that, does that not give you any pause? So let's be clear. Fentanyl is uh, an FDA-approved drug. Um, it's approved to treat uh, moderate to severe pain. Uh, in fact, we have uh, fentanyl lollipop formulations that we give children who may be in um, severe pain. Um, so the drug can be used safely uh, as long as people know that that's what they're getting. Uh, but your original question still is a good one. Are, are there any drugs that uh, concern me? Of course there are drugs that concern me. I mean, I can think about uh, uh, some events that happened out in California back in the 80s uh, when um, the people were trying to make um, uh, synthetic heroin and they made a drug called MPTP and it uh, caused uh, people to uh, uh, lose dopamine neurons. It caused neurotoxicity because they made um, uh, an inappropriate sort of uh, a drug. Uh, they, the formula was, uh, was uh, wrong. Uh, and so drugs like that, of course, they concern me, but those are not the drugs that people are seeking. Um, there are only a few compounds that people are seeking. And, and so if we educate people, make sure that uh, they have 
a clean uh, supply that is high quality drug, we can minimize uh, many of the risks associated with drugs, just like we minimize the risks associated with driving an automobile, which can be dangerous. Mm -hmm. You know, there were, right, these stories that would go around about certain drugs, in particular, I think of MDMA, right? Do you remember, the, oh, it burns, it burns holes in the brain. Um, yeah, yes. What do we know now about a drug like that or other drugs? Are there any long-lasting impacts to the brain that we know of? Yeah, that's a great question. You're talking about the early 2000s when that, that research was saying that MDMA burns a hole in the brain. So like the thing that the public needs to understand that if we give a drug at large enough doses to naive animals, you can see some toxic effects, whether that drug is acetaminophen, which is Tylenol, or whether that drug is nicotine, or whether that drug is MDMA. And so when you have some of these studies that uh, give large doses to naive animals, the question has to be, what is the relevance for the human condition? And oftentimes it's not relevant for the human condition. And so um, uh, that's the thing that we have to be careful about. Uh, some of these sort of findings are uh, decontextualized and um, um, that doesn't mean anything for the human situation. How interesting for you has it been watching this question of what's allowed to be put in a human body or not? For example, with the vaccines, right? You have a lot of people on the far right saying, you can't tell me what to put in my body. Um, and yet oftentimes it's the far right that is the most restrictive about ideas of drug use saying, well, you're not allowed to put this drug or another person should not be allowed to put X drug in their body, right? It's like this interesting question of freedom, I think we're coming across right now. Have you sat with this a little bit as you've been on tour thinking about it? Oh my God, uh, you said interesting question of freedom. Um, yeah, I've sat with it to put it mildly. Um, it's a, you, you know, so where I like to start is I like to start with the original promise of the country, this sort of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And this notion that uh, my rights do not supersede your rights or anyone else's rights. So that means that uh, we have this vaccine and we have this, this, this uh, illness that could com be communicated with uh, these sort of close contacts. And so I have a responsibility to make sure that I don't harm those people in my environment. And so if that means getting vaccinated, then that means getting vaccinated. Um, and so my, again, so I do have freedom but I don't have the freedom to communicate some illness to somebody else. Um, and so when we think about it from that perspective, uh, it's a lot more simple. Um, and so that means that uh, you can live your life as you choose. As long as you're not interacting with us in this society, then we get it. But if you choose to interact in this society, um, then you, um, uh, you cannot infringe upon the freedoms of other, of other members of that society. Well, I've been speaking with Dr. Carl Hartz at Columbia University. Uh, he's the author of a new book, Drug Use for Grownups, Chasing Liberty in the Land of Fear. Carl, thank you so much for the time. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. I really enjoyed it. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and all other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And if you like what you hear, we'd love to read your review. You can also find us at kcrw.org slash lifeexamined. And lastly, don't forget to check out Bodies Season 3 by KCRW and Allison Berenger. It's out now and definitely worth a listen. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week.